Father, we come this morning with that heart cry. We long to build our lives on you, on the truth of your words spoken to us, on the truth of what you have achieved for us, on the truth of who you are in your character throughout all generations. And from before time began, you were holy, you were separate. And when you created this earth that we live in, you created us in your image. As image bearers to reflect your glory and to respond in worship and to expand your reign over the earth that you have created. And so, Father, we come before you as a grateful people this morning. We come before you dependent upon you for our righteousness indebted to you for the grace that you have already displayed. And Father, now make us eager to serve. Make us eager to respond to this grace that we have so freely received. Open our hearts and minds to the beauty of your word as it speaks to us this morning. Open our hearts and minds to the stories we hear of what you are doing through connections in your body around the world. So, Father, as we hear about this latest trip to Romania, we pray that you would stir our hearts for the global church, for those around the world that um, are worshiping now or have already worshiped this morning, proclaiming your goodness and your grace in every language around the world. And, Father, we long for the day when more and more of your people will come to you in salvation, repent and believe in the good news of your gospel, so that at the end we will see when every knee bows and every tongue can, uh, can proclaim in their own language that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And while we wait for that day, we proclaim that on our, in our day, that Jesus Christ is Lord of us, is Lord of this place, and is Lord of this body. So, Spirit, guide us as we continue in our worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I'm going to ask our Romania team to come and uh, join me on stage here. This is Tom and Sally Perry, and uh, they are going to be joined by Raymond and Janice Hobby. And they were um, in Romania for a couple weeks at the end of last year and beginning of this year. And so they're going to share with us for a few minutes about what God did through them there. Okay, bună ziua, ce faci? Ben, okay. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, that's Romanian for uh, good morning, how's it shaking? And, and so I did that for Emmanuel, don't be impressed. All I can say after that is I don't understand Romanian and where's the bathroom? And then that's the extent of my language. But yeah, we, uh, the four of us, we, we left on Christmas Day, and uh, you'll see the picture up here, that's us uh, leaving out with our masks down, and we didn't get yelled at for doing that, but we had to put them up shortly after that. But um, as soon as we got into Romania, Sally and I got pulled out of uh, the line and told to go see somebody, and they threw us into quarantine for the first several days while we were there. So Raymond and Janice got thrown into uh, leadership at the, at the youth camp, which was the next day after we arrived, which they hadn't expected. And so we'll let you, uh, we'll let them tell you what happened because I, I wasn't there. 
the first set of slides that you will see are activities that we participated in while we were there. Various things, uh, there was a human battleship, and there are various games, and Janice always likes to import her game of Skipbow, so you'll see a slide here of that. And uh, Emmanuel could tell you, or yeah, Emmanuel could tell you about the little cup game they had uh, later on at some point in time. And then there's a sliding scene. We couldn't go outside because the weather was poor. We didn't see the sun, but about three out of the 16 or so days that we were over there. So it was overcast, and uh, the weather was unusual. It was not bad. And so then this is a sliding scene, and uh, Eddie was involved in this uh, quite heavily at times, and that's the, Emmanuel's uh, younger brother and all. And then you'll see uh, the last shot. Uh, about uh, this number of people were crowded into a room about half this size for our meal times and all. But it was great. It was uh, good fun. It was uh, good fellowship and the food was good, and we kind of adjusted to the different uh, times and uh, types of meals that we had and all. So, but it was great, and uh, we enjoyed doing this. As uh, Raymond mentioned, uh, we were, or Tom mentioned, uh, I kind of felt we were leaning upon them. They'd been over six or seven times to Romania, so I thought, yeah, okay, we'll be fine. We're with Tom and Sally. And then, no, we're not with Tom and Sally. And so, anyway, it, it just took a greater step of faith, you know, and the Lord had gone, we felt he really had gone before us and prepared the way. It was a blessed time uh, with, with new believing friends, and the Holy Spirit was just very evident as he prepared us, and as we stepped in, just, there was really basically no transition to, in my mind. We stepped off, we jumped into their youth camp, and were accepted and welcomed very warmly. The youth especially, it was kind of surprising, but they uh, many times throughout the four or five days we were there expressed appreciation for our, our efforts in coming. And I think they sensed the effort. You know, we, we flew on Christmas Day. Um, you're on a plane for, I'm not sure, 10 or so hours. And then you have to wear your mask in the airport and on the plane. So you're like in a mask for about, I don't know, 18 hours. That's fun. But anyway, uh, it was all a wonderful, wonderful experience of seeing God's hand at work, and we felt like we were stepping into uh, work that God was already doing, and we were co-workers uh, with these remaining believers. And Raymond and I were very blessed to be able to, now we feel like we have uh, relatives in Romania. Uh, anyway, uh, the worship time also was very meaningful. They had uh, like four or five different worship teams. I, I believe four or five churches were represented. And uh, the youth were just handling it all. They, they presented the worship to us in a fine uh, manner. Violinists, flautists, and such were there. Uh, the theme of our camp was guardrails, about the importance of putting up intentionally, uh, wanting to walk in godliness, and putting up guardrails around our life uh, to make this happen, to, that it is possible to walk in Christ-likeness. And uh, these guardrails facilitate this. Uh, two of our key verses, Second uh, Peter 3.17, was to be on your guard so that you won't be carried away by error. And then Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So Raymond and Tom, Raymond via Zoom, presented this main sessions. Um, excuse me, Tom via Zoom uh, presented the, the main session teaching, and we were ever grateful to the translators. And then uh, I helped Raymond in leading a discussion group, thankfully all of which spoke English. And uh, we did, our translator was Ray Luca, 
Uh, she is the young lady uh, in the, uh, right there in the green sweatshirt. Uh, she's the one that Tim asked prayer requests for six years ago when he went for the youth camp. There was a young lady who was being in, strongly encouraged by her parents. In fact, they wanted to pull her out of the camp, and she wanted to receive Christ, be baptized, and become a Christ follower. And we prayed, and lo and behold, here she is now, six years later, a strong believer. She is a student of engineering and air engineering robotics, I think near her completion of her uh, college work. She was a beautiful young lady, beautiful Christian, and an excellent translator. That's the most important thing. We could understand what was going on because of her skills. Uh, then the other translator was Goldie, uh, who we, well, Tom will talk about her at Saturate. The other God story was, uh, it'll be a picture later on, but her name is Georgiana, that uh, Tom, or our church, received an email from Romania of her urgent prayer for this young lady, a mother of four her husband was out of town, and she needed emergency medical help. And we prayed as a church, and we got to meet her. And this was just a few months ago this happened that we prayed for her. She was also at the youth camp, the youth ranging in age from 13 to 30. But uh, she was just a beautiful young lady. When, she, when we were introduced to them, I go, you're Georgiana. We prayed for you. It's so, what's such a blessing to meet you. And she was excited, too, to meet someone who prayed for her across the ocean. So our time there was just truly blessed, and we learned and were inspired by the young people that were there. Uh, they, their commitment to Christ was, blew us away. They truly lived out this verse, 1 Timothy 4.12, Do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. And these young people really did that. They, they challenged me and inspired us to walk and truly uh, practice spiritual disciplines. Thank you. Yeah, Raymond taught in the uh, evening sessions, and I taught in the morning sessions uh, via Zoom, glad for technology. So after they came back from the camp, Sally and I were able to be released from quarantine, and, uh, and then it was time for New Year's Eve. And they celebrate New Year's Eve a little bit differently in Romania than we do here, don't they, Emmanuel? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. And so what, they, so what we did was we went to a church service. They have a New Year's Eve church service at Geneza. And, uh, and so that was a two-hour service. And then they break up. The youths stay together, and the adults go to different houses or apartments. And they stay up until about 5 or 6 in the morning. And, uh, and then play games and eat and do various things. And so at the church, in this, in this slide right here, you see Georgiana. She's the one with the white shirt. And uh, her, her husband, Janutz, is, uh, is next to her. But she was the one that we prayed for. What, what Emmanuel? Okay. <laughs> so this is at the end of the church service on Sunday evening, both... Uh, both the hobbies and the, the Perrys got to share during this uh, during the service, and then after the service, when we broke up, we went to uh, houses, and so uh, and so the the hobbies went to the Grian's house, and we went to uh, the Kura's house, and so you can see the group here. We're having uh, all having dinner together, and then we played games afterwards, uh, and then in the next slide, you'll see the host family for Daniela, uh, Hannah. And uh, when she was there back during that time that we had the camp, that, uh, 
that Ralu was, uh, her parents threatened to pull her out and uh, take her home. And uh, so, but Gabby works at the airport, and so he was our conduit for everything that we needed to be able to get out of the country because it was a crazy time back then. And then, um, and then after that, we, we had a few extra days, which we didn't have anything planned. We, well, we did have something planned. We had planned on going to Budapest, Hungary, uh, to, uh, to visit with some of our newest um, missionaries, Mike and Kelly Maney, with crew. But we had such a hard time getting into the country the first time. I didn't want to try to leave and then see if we could get out again. So we had to stay in country. So they took us around. And these are a few shots. Uh, the Grians took uh, Raymond and Janice through town, so you, you see some of the town shots of some of the buildings that they have there. And then there's an overview in the next picture of, uh, of, of the city with the stadium in the, in the background, the large stadium. And, uh, and Raymond and, and Donnie Grian stood at the overlook and, uh, to, to see it. That's, that's where they had the vista of the whole place. And then Donnie took us to a, a salt mine, Torda, which is a, a, a closed salt mine, which is now an amusement park. There's a Ferris wheel, bowling, pool tables, um, uh, boat rides, all sorts of things inside there. And uh, it's a constant, I think, 58 degrees. And then we went to Alba Yulia to pick up Donnie's daughter, um, Denisa. And while we were there, we went to the Citadel, the, Alba Iulia used to be a capital of Romania, and this is the uh, Romanian Orthodox Church in the, in the capital. And then after that, we went for the, the main purpose of our trip was for Saturate Cluj. If you remember two years ago, we had a, uh, we, we had a, a, our mission project was to do the same thing that we did in Dalton for Saturate USA in Cluj, which is to get churches to go out and share the gospel. And so we had a retreat about 80, 90 kilometers outside of Cluj. And uh, it was a beautiful place right here. We're in, in, the, uh, in, in the foothills of, of uh, Transylvania Mountains. And, uh, and so there was a group. There was about seven different churches here. Donnie organized it. And you can see um, this is not everybody. This was taken the last day just before we broke up and we had to have uh, we had a few more people there but we had about 40 people there from about six or seven different churches and uh, and Donnie had contacted a uh, a member of crew in in Bucharest which is the capital of Romania and so he offered to supply all the literature which we had raised money for so with that we were able to help pay for the for the retreat and even the president of Crew Romania, Nelu, um, wanted to come see what we were doing. So he flew up with uh, Niku, who was uh, Donnie's contact. And so they joined us in it. But you can see it was, a, it was a weekend full of prayer, full of planning. And, uh, and we had several people there. Uh, Niku shared what they're doing in Crew to do something similar. And... Uh, and, and so they even did some things that were similar to us, too. They pulled up a map of the Cluj area and broke out neighborhoods where, they, where the churches would, would focus on as they, as they go out. And, uh, and then they have, this shows what they plan on doing, the different projects that they would do. Their follow-up was going to be to offer different, um, different ministry uh, uh, offerings to people 
as, as a follow-up to keep in contact with people. And so you see there's a list of nine of them right here. Uh, that we had meals together. We shared meals together. We had a breakfast buffet, which was nice. Their breakfast is a lot meatier and cheesier than ours. <laughs> and, then, and then we finished. We just want to finish just sharing some pictures of our Romanian friends and partners in the gospel. As Janice and Raymond said, we feel like family there, and, and we are because we're all members of the same body of Christ. This is Donnie Grian. He was here two years ago when the, uh, when the pandemic started, and his wife, uh, and his wife Donna. And, uh, and, then, and then we were there in time for their oldest son's 21st birthday. And so that's him in the middle. The two people on the left are, are their daughter, Denisa, and their son, Sammy. And then there's also um, uh, uh, Cipri, who is Emmanuel's mentor. Uh, he, he showed up to, for his birthday also. So that's him with his back to us. We got to go to church services. We were there two Sundays, so the hobbies went to Renastria the first Sunday. We went to uh, Geneza, and then we switched, and we went to Renastria the second Sunday, and they went to Geneza. This is Donnie it, um, uh, talking or starting to preach there at, uh, at Geneza, and each of us, they asked us to share, so we basically shared in, in the two church services that we went to in the two different Sundays. And then it was time for us to go. Donna had gotten uh, COVID, she tested positive, and so we all had to stay at the uh, Kura's house. And so, uh, so, uh, so we were all together for dinner that last night. You can see Emmy and Nadia in the middle. They're uh, uh, Emmanuel's oldest sister, Patty. She's the one closest to us. And then, they're, and then his little brother, Eddie, saying hi. And... Uh, and then just wanted to uh, share a picture of, of our newest missionaries that we're supporting. This is Mihai and Lija Collar. And they, and they uh, Donnie has taken on several roles with, uh, uh, with, uh, with Eche Homo. He's the president of Eche Homo, which is a Christian relief organization. They help people. There's a lot of needs there. And so Mihai has come into... Uh, into Renastria and helped share the preaching and pastoring duties there. So he's the one in the tie, and that's their two children, Timea and Patrick. And so we just want to, Janice, wh wh where did this saying come from? I'm part of something bigger? Okay, Jordan and Micah Smith said, I'm part of something bigger. We're a part of the larger church, and it's not just here in Dalton. We're part of, uh, part, part of the church worldwide. And, uh, and so uh, we really felt it. They could feel it. And they didn't tell you, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. You know, we go over there and we want to minister, but I really felt like we were ministered to more than they were ministered, than, than we ministered to them. And we learned a lot about from them and of what it is to leave a genuinely God-centered life. And so it's, uh, we came back. I almost died because I had to wear a mask for 20 hours, and, uh, and I was breathing in my CO2 the whole time. But uh, I, I just praise God. Just as a follow-up, I'll tell you, they have had two prayer meetings with six churches the, uh, for their targeting uh, Orthodox Easter for their Saturate uh, outreach. Orthodox Easter is one week after our Easter, 
And so the first church, the first prayer service they had together, they had between 90 and 100 people for a two-hour service. Uh, uh, last month, the end of February, they were down because the COVID people were just getting sick. There were only about 70 people there at the prayer service. And, uh, and so the week after Easter, they're going to they're gonna go out and, and just share, uh, share the gospel. And people in the church, they seem to be catching the vision that we had. And so we can be praying for that. Thank you. Nobody got hurt. It was all in good fun. Um, that was yesterday at uh, what we're now calling our first Saturday fellowship events. And um, the way it works is the first Saturday of every month, we will plan a fellowship event. And really, the idea was spurned by the Joyce Life Group. And uh, they've done one at the Joyce's house and one here yesterday. And so we just wanted to show you some pictures and video from the families that came out for that and uh, tell you that we'll, we'll have another one again in April, and uh, we'll, we'll get you more details on where that's going to be, what we're going to do, but just an opportunity. We've had um, an influx of new people into the church in this season, which is awesome, but we've also had the limitation of worshiping in a smaller space, uh, having multiple services, and still having some people that attend less regularly, and so we want to create more opportunities for fellowship events, for people to just get to know each other and spend some time together doing some fun things. So that's the purpose of that. We played kickball. We had some fun. It was a great day. So um, just make note of that when we start talking about the next one. A few announcements to know about. This Saturday is our Rebuilding Hope um, work day. And so if you're not signed up for that, you can still come and help. We're going to meet here at eight o'clock Saturday morning. 
and we'll work until about two or three that day, depending on when we can finish up those projects. Lunch will be provided. So if you're signed up for that, that's just plan on eight to three. If you're not signed up, you can still join us. Just let me know after the service or email myself or Ramona to let us know that you're coming. We'd love to have you join us. Um, we'll have at least two different work sites, but we'll meet here to figure that out Saturday morning. Immediately after this service today, we'll have a new members lunch. And the new members lunch is really an informational lunch. It's, it's not, you don't have to become a new member um, in order to go to the lunch. So if you've been visiting for, if this is your first time here, or if this is your 10th time here and you haven't become a member or however many times, um, it's a great way to hear more information about the church. And, and then you'll learn what the process is to becoming a member. So uh, some people signed up for that. If you didn't sign up, but you still would like to join us for that, then just find me after the service and um, we have enough food. We'd love for anybody else to join us for that. Um, then um, we have a men's ministry lunch two weeks from today. So men, make note of that. We'll plan on just being here for about an hour and a half. Lunch will be provided. Um, but we'll talk about upcoming season of men's ministry, what we're looking at for the year ahead. You'll hear a little bit from our men's ministry leadership team on that kind of stuff. So that's two weeks from today, immediately after this service. And then um, next week, we will start our leadership election process. And what, what that means is our elders and our deacons are our are elected members of our congregation. And if you are a member of this church, um, you will be receiving a ballot in which you can select elders and deacons to vote for to serve in those leadership offices. So that process will start next week, and I'll talk a little bit more fully about how that process works next week. Um, lastly, Awana and youth are on schedule tonight as normal, and with that I mean Awana is normal. Um, youth is not normal. We have a special guest speaker tonight, and it is me because AJ no-showed today. I'm just kidding. He, they're actually at the hospital because Carson's having a baby today. So um, we're going to stop for a second, and we're going to pray for the Hooper family um, and for Carson as um, she is literally in labor right now, and we're excited for AJ and Carson and little Amelia who um, is, uh, like I said, in labor right now. So let me pray, and then we'll open up Luke chapter 20 together. Father, we praise you for uh, what you are doing in our midst and for uh, bringing the Hooper family to us, for AJ's leadership within our body, and for uh, bringing him and Carson um, into our congregation here. And we thank you for uh, now, today, uh, bringing them to the point of adding to their family um, through this birth. And we pray for your safety um, and protection over Carson throughout the labor. We pray for your safety and protection for baby Amelia. We pray for safe delivery. And uh, we remember, Father, that we have, um, at this point, um, multiple families within our church family that are expecting uh, new births. And so we pray for your safety for all of those others, but particularly for um, Carson and Amelia right now. God, we pray your, your hand of protection um, over them, and we rejoice in the beauty of, of new life that you have created. So be with them today, Father, and bless the rest of our service and um, our ministry to kids and youth tonight and the life groups that we'll meet tonight. Father, we just give you the glory for what you're doing in our church in this season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in the 1890s, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in England, and he's one of the most well-known preachers of all time. 
And in the 1890s, though, Spurgeon was really unique in his season of time because he created a cultural phenomenon. He spoke in the largest buildings available to speak at. He would outgrow his church multiple times with the crowds that were coming to hear the man who would be known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a celebrity preacher before anybody knew what a celebrity was. Now, with that saying, I don't say that as a negative. Uh, Spurgeon was an incredible gospel preacher and Bible teacher who yearned for revival, yearned for the fire of the Holy Spirit to move in people and for them to have an understanding of the biblical gospel and biblical doctrine. Um, But he was well-known and created a cultural phenomenon at the end of the 1800s. And then one of the weirdest, most surprising things, um, actually one question that Spurgeon asked multiple times in sermons at the end of the 1800s created another cultural phenomenon a hundred years later in our country when in the 1990s people started walking around with these cool bracelets like what I have right now. This question, what would Jesus do, was actually first attributed to Charles Spurgeon, which he asked in multiple sermons over 130 years ago. And the way Spurgeon would do it is he would say one of the most important questions that we could ask in response to the gospel, in response to what Christ has done for us. So so first, as Spurgeon presented it, you establish what Jesus has done. That's the most important question. What has Jesus done? And now, in response to the question, what has Jesus done? Now, what would Jesus have you do? What would Jesus do given the opportunities for influence and obedience that you have in your life? And how would he do it if he were living today in this season, in this city? Uh, He actually would say that this would be helpful to families to put it on your wall, to reflect on and ask yourself, what would Jesus do and how would he do it? Because the question then reflects for us, how do we live in response to him? How do we live in obedience of his authority? So Spurgeon said it in the 1890s, and author Charles Sheldon popularized it in um, a book that he wrote um, in, in, the 19, in the late 1900s, and then it became this youth group phenomenon. And so sixth grade Tim, I don't think this was the one that I had in sixth grade. It may be, I don't know. I don't, it looks too new. But I don't know where this one came from, but I found it in my office, so I thought I'd wear it today as an illustration of this question. But see, when I was in sixth grade, 20-some years ago, more than that, I don't know. I don't do math in my head, remember. But when I was in sixth grade, this was a big deal. And I remember going to school, and at first it was cool because then like, you knew who the real Jesus followers were, who were the real Christians within a school, because everybody was wearing these WWJD bracelets to identify themselves as followers of Christ. And then it got kind of too cool to be beneficial anymore. Because then it became such a cultural phenomenon that people just started wearing them all over the place, and it lost its meaning, as cultural trends tend to do. Something was really significant, really powerful for a season, and it got so big that the the trend itself became devoid of the original meaning for it. But I want to recapture a little bit of that today in again asking the question, given the fact that Jesus is the authority That Jesus has been given authority and has now given us the call to follow him. How do we live in response to him? Our passage in Luke 20 asks two questions or or tells the story of two questions being asked. Uh, First, Jesus is asked a question and he responds with a question. But then there's another question that Jesus is asked at the end. 
And the questions all relate to authority. Jesus is asked about where his authority came from. He responds with a question that is impossible to answer. And then Jesus, because the people don't answer, uh, responds with an illustration. And then the people get so worked up by his illustration that they ask him another question. Because they try to mimic Jesus here. Jesus asks an impossible question, so those that are against Jesus, the leaders, seek to find an impossible question to stump Jesus. And we'll see Jesus' response here. We'll start in John or in Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. We'll stop right there to review from last week. Last week we saw that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he drove out those that were buying and selling in the temple because they were profiting off of a misapplication of the law of God. And Jesus came in at the end of chapter 19 to say, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that area where the buying and selling was going on was originally intended for people to come and hear the the law taught to them. So it was an area of learning and education. This is not the area where the sacrifices were actually being offered, but it was an area of education. And actually there was a part of it that even the Gentiles could enter into to hear the law of God presented and taught. So Jesus had to make some room because he was going to spend the whole week there teaching. So this is what's happening as we come to Luke chapter 20. We're probably Monday or Tuesday of that week, what we call Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. Thursday, he gets arrested. Early Friday morning, he's on the cross. Sunday, he rises again, and we call that Easter. So this is the Monday or Tuesday before that where he cleared out the temple so that he could come and teach the people daily the truth of the interpretation of the law with a mind on the coming of Jesus' kingdom. Okay, So that's what it means. When Jesus is teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, remember, he had to create that space. For him to teach. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Now, if Jesus cleared a bunch of people that were making money for the chief priests out of the out of the temple the day before, do you think the chief priests came in with an axe to grind? Absolutely. Jesus had, by his teaching, created a lot of enemies for himself. And there were lots of forces against Jesus. It's like Jesus was drawing out the evil forces that were trying to stop the expanse of Christ's kingdom. And they were coming and they were attacking. In this passage, we see three categories of people that are against Jesus. The chief priests, the scribes, or also called the teachers of the law. They were those that would copy the law and then teach it to others. They were teachers of the law because they knew it well, because they literally spent their day reading it, and rewriting it. And this group of people in the New Testament are sometimes referred to as scribes, sometimes lawyers or experts in the law, and sometimes teachers of the law because they knew the law the best. So you have the chief priests, you have the scribes, and then you have the elders, the older respected Jews of the community. So this is not even talking about Pharisees or Sadducees, two other group of Jews that were against Jesus, Herodians, another group of of Jews that were against Jesus. Jesus had all sorts of groups of leaders of the Jewish people that were coming against him in this coalition to stop him, in this coalition to go back to the status quo before Jesus came in, got all the people riled up with his teaching, and messed up what the leaders had going here. 
okay? So these are three categories of a much broader group of people that were seeking to stop Jesus. And they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things and who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I'll ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with each other, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, then all the people will stone us to death because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered him that they did not know where John's baptism came from. And, they said to, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So where this, is this authority question coming from? Well, if you were to, in the year 2022, be approached by somebody who claimed to be an expert on literally anything and started talking and seeming very knowledgeable and saying things that you have never heard before or never heard anybody else say before and presenting themselves as an expert, you would ask, where did you get your information? You would ask, where did you study? Where did you go to school? It seems like you know what you're talking about, but where did you learn this stuff? Did you just find a blog post somewhere and you became an expert overnight? Or did you actually go to school to study this? Where is your authority and your knowledge base coming from? We would ask that question in 2022. And so in the first century, people would ask that question of somebody who spoke as an authority. Okay, who did you train under? What's your resume? What's your education? Where did you learn what you're saying? And the problem is with Jesus is he never fit into their categories. Because at 12 years old, he was debating them in the temple. And at 12 years old, he showed this remarkable understanding. And then early in his public ministry, about three years before this, the people marveled at him because he taught as one with authority. But when Jesus came in to teach his authority, he walked into the synagogue, he read from, from the scroll of the Old Covenant, and then he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, this is about me. Nobody had ever said that like that before. Nobody had ever come and said, this Old Covenant, this prophecy from Isaiah, this is about me and I am fulfilling it in your presence. Those bold claims that Jesus was making, the people were uncomfortable with it, and particularly the leaders. Where did you get your authority? Who taught you? Who trained you? We need to understand kind of where you get your accreditation for your expertise here, right? Jesus didn't fit into their categories because he derived his authority from his status as being the Son of God. And being perfect God and perfect man at once, he had a perfect knowledge of the law of God and God's true intent for the law. Therefore, he had an, an, an ability to interpret the law correctly in a way that the self-seeking leaders of Israel in that day did not interpret the law correctly. So they ask him a question about authority. He changes the discussion to say, okay, before I tell you what authority I got, what about John? Because here's the issue that Jesus knows, the, the leaders of Israel know, and the people know. Everybody knows this. Those leaders of Israel didn't like John. They didn't believe John. So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they would have had just the same problem with John that they had with Jesus. So for Jesus to say, Okay, I'm not going to answer your question about me until you answer the same question about John. Where did he get his authority? 
and the people, the, the leaders had two problems. Number one, everybody loved John. Everybody in the big crowd around them. And number two, they didn't in this small group of leaders. So what are they going to say to a crowd that loves Jesus and loves John? Are they going to say, yeah, we think John was faking it the whole time. No, they're not going to say that because they're afraid of the great crowd of people. But that's what they actually believe. That's what they want to convince the people of. But they know it's not the time and place to be able to convince the people of that. So they clam up and they say, gee, I don't know. And Jesus, with his impossible-to-answer question, has stumped them. And notice, Jesus is, is confrontational in this, in this interaction here. And Jesus is gentle, but he is gentle and confrontational at the same time. In a way that if we ask the question, what would Jesus do? If we are trying to follow Jesus and represent Jesus in this, in this world and in this season of time in which we live, this is one of those excruciatingly difficult things to emulate. How can Jesus confront the leaders and really pierce into the heart of the issue so clearly while yet being very gentle in the way he's doing it because he's not screaming in anybody's face he did overturn temple tables the day before but in this interaction he's simply asking some gentle questions and he's making the point he needed to make he's making a confrontational point by asking simple questions and telling a simple story and here's the simple story in verse 9 and following, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent the first servant away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so the landowner sends a third servant. This one also they wounded and cast out. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and kill him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So we'll stop it right there and talk about this parable for a minute. Everybody knows what he's talking about. I, I believe very clearly, given the context and the setting in which they were in, the leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and the people knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So it, let's take a minute to make sure that we understand what they understand when Jesus is telling the story. In Isaiah 5, 7, God says that Israel is his vineyard, which he has planted himself. So that gives us the first clue to understanding the picture of this parable. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The, the planter, the landowner, that is God himself. And so that makes the tenant farmers the leaders of Israel like the chief priests and the scribes, or like the kings of the Old Testament, the, the, the priests throughout generations that we see throughout the Old Covenant Scriptures, kings and priests and the various leaders of the nation. Those are the farmers. The servants, the spokesmen for the landowner, those are the prophets. And the son is Jesus. And I believe that everybody there saw it because you can see in verse 19, we're, we're about to say this in a minute, uh, you can see that the scribes and the chief priests in verse 19 
know that he's talking about them in this story. And I believe the crowd knew too. Uh, Just to, to illustrate this, Jesus was teaching in this platform on the Temple Mount. So this is not, again, where they were offering sacrifices. This was a big open area, and the building of the temple was actually behind them where sacrifices were, were offered inside, okay? But on the outside of the temple, Herod, this temple was constructed by Herod. This is not the original temple or not Nehemiah's temple. This is a temple constructed by Herod. By Herod. And this temple actually had a golden vine on the exterior wall. Why? Because they read Isaiah 5, and they knew that not just in Isaiah 5, but other places in the Old Covenant, the vine is a picture of Israel, and God is the gardener, is the landowner that plants the vineyard. And so on, there's this huge, massive structure. The temple of the Lord is behind Jesus as he's, as he's teaching, and he has a visual aid of a vine with leaves and branches coming off of it that is golden on a huge block wall right behind him. And so, do the people know that Israel is God's vineyard? Yes. They're standing in the Temple Mount looking at a huge golden vine on the wall of the temple. They know the story that Jesus is telling. And so, the tenant farmers have taken the attitude of ownership instead of the attitude of stewardship. That is the problem. That is why Jesus is so offensive to them, because they are not seeing themselves as stewards of what God has entrusted to them, but owners of the authority and the the role and the notoriety that they have within society. And so these leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, they don't want to open up to the son of the landowner who is coming in and, and, and reworking, redefining their categories and their assumptions about how to live in response to the law. And so, yeah, the tenant farmers are the leaders of Israel in that day. Stephen is um, the first martyr of the church, and we know his story. Um, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, is killed for speaking the truth of the gospel in Jerusalem. Very close, in the same area, actually, on the Temple Mount, Stephen is killed. And so this is weeks, okay? Think about this. Uh, Between Luke 20 and Acts chapter 7, weeks go by. Not months, not years, weeks. So weeks after this, Stephen's going to be killed in this very spot for saying this. You stiff-necked people, With uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? Acts 7, 51 and 52. Now, I don't know if y'all know this, but I've taken some counseling classes, and I occasionally work with some people in some counseling techniques. And let me tell you, if I was Stephen's counselor, and this was a conflict resolution kind of a situation, I would look at Stephen and I would say, Stephen, if you want the conflict to be resolved, don't use the language of always and never. Because it always, when you say always, it always exacerbates the problem. But in this context, you know what, Stephen? If it's true, use the word always. Because Stephen is not exaggerating the context here. If you were in a conflict resolution situation, you would say to somebody, don't say always unless it's really always. 
Because when you say always, it, it just throws gasoline onto the fire of a conflict. We know that Stephen was killed because he said always. And he said you never accepted any prophets. Every single prophet your forefathers killed. Of course you killed Jesus. That's the case that Stephen's making in Acts 7. And he's right. You can say always and never when, the, when it really is always and never. And in this situation, Stephen says, you always reject the Holy Spirit. You've never accepted the prophets. And here, here's the list, y'all. Elijah, Elijah was sent into the wilderness running from, from the king of his day. Uh, Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the place that Jesus is standing right there. Where Stephen was stoned to death, Zechariah was stoned to death. And that's where Jesus is delivering this message. John the Baptist was beheaded only a few uh, months before this. The writer of Hebrews summarizes Israel's interactions with the prophets this way. They were stoned, Zechariah. They were sawn in two, Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword, John the Baptist. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, John the Baptist. Destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Israel's history with prophets from God is not good. They're not welcoming. They're not accepting. And so why? Why would they be surprised that Jesus, the Son, is not being accepted? And that's, that's why Jesus is telling the story. He's telling the story so that the people will know this is just the latest in a series of rejections in which the leader of Israel have missed what God is doing. And, and, it's, and it's a message for the people of Israel. Don't follow your leaders when they miss what God is doing. And so, he asks the question, at the end of this story, the story is completed. Three servants have been beaten and abused and sent back empty-handed. The heir has been sent in place of the servants, and the heir himself was killed. Not beaten, not sent back empty-handed, killed. Because the tenant farmer said, we'll inherit the land now. If the heir is gone, we stand to inherit the land. So they took the opportunity to kill him. And Jesus asked the question, okay, this happens. What happens next? And notice Jesus' answer. Verse 16. He will come, the landowner, will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. It's like there's a gasp from the people. Surely not. And again, I think this is a hint that people knew what he was talking about. And if you apply that story according to the five points that I just put up there, where Israel is the vineyard and the landowner is God and the tenant farmers are the very people that are asking Jesus these questions, then the conclusion of the story is God himself coming to destroy the leaders who are questioning Jesus. And that's why the surely not. Whoa, 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 this just got intense. We were asking a question about authority and now Jesus is proclaiming God's judgment on us. But this is, this is right, and this is true. And Jesus has the biblical weight to say it. He's not just speaking as the Son of God, providing new revelation. Jesus is, is explaining what the old covenant has always said to them. And he is, he is interpreting it in a way in which they have missed. So the people said, surely not. But I love this. He looked directly at him divine eye contact from the Son of God. 
directly at them. And he said, okay, surely not. Well, what then is this that is written? Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, who are the builders? The leaders of Israel. Who is the cornerstone? Jesus. And there's two functions of the cornerstone. The cornerstone, we'll read the rest of the passage. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Two purposes of Jesus as cornerstone. The cornerstone actually connects two walls and, and gives structural continuity to a building that God is building. And the cornerstone is an, an, an essential part of the structure of this building that God is building. Because here's the thing, they're standing in the temple. Again, it's beautiful. There's a big golden vine right behind Jesus as he's speaking. It's a beautiful structure. And one of the things that Jesus is saying all throughout this week and throughout the previous three years is that this God's presence among his people is no longer being shared in the building of the temple. God has a new temple. And first, Jesus self-identifies as the temple. And then Jesus and the New Testament authors identify the church and the people of God as the temple. God's dwelling place is with man, not in the physical structure of the temple. God's dwelling place is with man within the hearts and minds of redeemed children of God, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of the new temple that he's building. So then we all together are being built together into one structure, the new temple of God. We the church, redeemed believers, children of God, we are blocks within this structure of the temple of God. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So the first function of the cornerstone is to provide structural integrity and connection between the various blocks as a part of God's temple. Jesus is what binds us together. So we can go to Romania and we can come back from Romania and feel like we have family in Romania. Why is that? Because Jesus, the cornerstone, binds us together. And there's a Romania wall, and there's a United States of America wall, and we're bound together because Jesus is the connecting point, the cornerstone. But the cornerstone also has a negative function, and that is the stone that those who reject Jesus fall over and trip over, and then their end is destruction. And so there are many in the crowd that will get it. And Jesus' closest followers will get it. They'll be united together as the cornerstone. This became one of Peter's favorite sayings. In Acts 4, Peter is questioned by the chief priests. Weeks later, again, in Acts 4, Jesus goes and is questioned by likely some of the same chief priests. He quotes the same verse. You guys, in killing Jesus, rejected the cornerstone. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes that in in Acts 4. And then in 1 Peter 2, in his letter to the church, he quotes it. And he says, that's that's why we're being built together as God's new dwelling place. Peter loves this phrase, and he uses it twice to emphasize the fact that we are a part of God's new plan of construction. Okay, so then in verse 19, the guys that stirred up the original issue about authority, they're mad now. Verse 19, we have another question that follows. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, okay? For, for 
a few chapters as we've been reading through Luke, the leaders of Israel have been mad at Jesus for months now, maybe, maybe even years at this point. But now, it says in Luke uh, 2019, at that very hour, they were ready. They were just done with him. But they feared the people, okay? Because the people behind them were really loyal to Jesus. So in verse 20, they watched him and they sent spies. They literally paid people to come in and act like they were following Jesus when they weren't. Because there came a certain point where they had questioned Jesus too much. And the people and Jesus knew who they were. So they thought, we'll find people that are neither chief priests, they're neither antagonists to Jesus, nor are they loyal to Jesus. We'll find these third parties to come in and we'll pay them to work for us and to ask Jesus hard questions, to try to trip him saying something offensive to either the Romans or to the Jews, and we'll try to catch him somewhere. So those are the spies. The spies pretended to be sincere in verse 20 so that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Let me say, I just said it, but let me say it a little bit more clearly. Jesus had multiple parties that were against him. Whether you were very seriously focused on the Jewish law or very seriously pro-Rome, Jesus had two categories of people that were absolutely against him. The Jewish status quo hated him, and the Roman status quo hated him. So all they had to do to get the people against Jesus was offend on either angle. And so this question that they're asking is the perfect question for Jesus to either be too Jewish or too Roman. That's that's the point of this question that comes, to either get him to sound too Roman to the Jews or too Jewish to the Roman authorities. Verse 21. They asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're buttering him up. They're paid to be there. These are not sincere followers. So they're praising Jesus with empty words of praise in order to ask a question. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, which is a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Simple response. Give that coin to Caesar. It has his face on it. Give to God the things that have God's image on them. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. They were stunned. How do we we trip them up after that? What do we say in response to that? They had no answer. But a couple things that we can see here. Uh, First, Jesus does value human authority and institutions. Jesus is actually giving room and allowing space for the Roman government to operate. As much as the people disliked Rome, as much as Rome violated God's law, as much as Rome was full of, of sinners, and the government led by evil, evil people. Jesus allows room for the human authority structure and the government of the Roman Empire to function. And and if you go throughout the New Testament, you, you see this, that in Romans 13, we're called to submit to those in authority, and and the same in 1 Peter 2. And in 1 Timothy 2, we're called to pray for leaders of human institutions. So the New Testament does 
tell Christians to submit to governing authorities and to live under the authority established by governments and by human authority systems. So if you're coming to Jesus hoping to not pay taxes, he doesn't give you room for that. If you're coming to Jesus thinking, well, I don't have to follow the laws of the land now because I'm a new kingdom citizen. No, you still get pulled over when you drive over the speed limit. You should follow that law, speaking from personal experience here. But you follow the laws of the land as a Christian. Just a couple times. Um, Jesus is giving us his teaching that the laws of the land matter, and you follow them. Now, we balance that, okay? Acts 5 Acts 5, the followers of Jesus, the apostles, go before the Roman authorities and are questioned, and they're told, okay, you guys can live but never speak about Jesus and his gospel again. And they walk out and they say, well, we cannot accept the authority of men over the authority of God. We must follow God and not man. So with that said, the New Testament is clear in following government authorities, the New Testament is clear as and also having the authority of God the King and our first citizenship as new kingdom citizens over any citizenship we have in this world. So follow the governance of the land until it violates the scripture and God's clear revelation. And then Christians are actually called to not submit to governing leaders in that situation. So it's complex, but it's there. The, the New Testament gives us clear revelation on following governing structures and on when we can and should and must reject those governing structures. So that's the first thing from this passage. Jesus values human authority and institutions, but number two. And this is where we're really going to land today. Number two, God claims ownership of those that bear his image. And Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that all human beings were created in the image of God. And so that means you were created in the image of God. So that means Jesus early on in this passage has established his teaching authority over Israel. And now Jesus has established God's ownership over you. So your coins, your money, your income, pay taxes on those. God wants you. The, the government wants your money. Let them have it. God wants you. God doesn't want your money. God wants you. And so when, when you are asked to give money towards Christ's kingdom, it's not because God wants your money, but because he wants you to not, be, to not be so connected and addicted to the security that your money establishes or the materialism that your money establishes. So he wants to free you from that by calling you to give it towards his kingdom and the expanse of it. But God doesn't want the money. He wants you. And so as we close this whole section, we recognize that the Imago Dei, which is a fancy word for the image of God, the Imago Dei is the image of God that we all, as human beings, receive and then have the ability to reflect. And in our fallenness, we do not reflect it. But as Christ comes and has his body broken and his blood shed for us, we receive that gift and the image of God. It's like a broken mirror being restored so that we can again reflect the beauty of God's image to others. So the questions, whose image do you bear? And how? How do you bear it? Are we properly reflecting the image of God? We started with the question, what would Jesus do? The question has now become, 
how would Jesus have you reflect him in the opportunities, relationships, and the places that he's placed you? How is Jesus calling you to live as a citizen of his kingdom in the midst of the opportunities you have in front of you? The band's going to come. We're going to sing one more song together. And then we are going to receive together the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And by that, I mean that the Lord's Supper, again, gives to us the broken body of Christ to be consumed, the shed blood of Christ to be consumed, so that we are reminded and refreshed with a newness of what it means to be a restored image bearer, only made possible through the cross of Christ. So as they play, we're going to stand and sing. The communion elements are on this back table back here. And so they will not be passed out. You can come back as, at any point through the song. I'll actually move one of them up here. We'll have some back there, some up here. And you can come and get them from the tray yourself. Go back to your seat. We will receive the Lord's Supper together at the end of this song. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at His feet we bow. The one who
take the first layer of plastic off and we'll reveal the bread which is Christ's body that is broken for us. When we come to the Lord's table and we receive of the Lord's Supper, we recognize this is a meal that is for believers, for new covenant believers that have received the gospel of Jesus Christ that says that we are only made righteous through his broken body and shed blood for us. And then he says, take and eat. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in this, our senses are stimulated to recognize in a different way that God is good. And that Jesus, our Savior, whose image we bear, has given up, has been broken for the sake of our restoration. And so when we eat this, we receive unto ourselves again what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and to be united to him in his death. Do this in remembrance of him. And then we take the cup, which is consistent with the revelation of all of the scriptures, that in order for sin to be atoned for, blood must be shed. But this atonement is not a temporary covering over as the the system of the old covenant uh, reveals. This is a final washing away so that these sins will not be held against us anymore. This is only received by receiving Jesus. So in proclamation that we have received forgiveness of sins and new life running through our veins as a gift of grace from him, We do this in remembrance of Jesus. And Father, as we proclaim the death of Jesus in receiving 
the bread and the juice. So, Father, we proclaim the life of Jesus by walking in obedience, walking in full dependence and full commitment to you. So, Father, compel us by the love of Christ. Compel us out into our homes, into our neighborhoods, and into our workplaces. Send us out as ambassadors of the way that Jesus lived in full love and devotion towards you and love of neighbor, compelled by, by your love of your image bearers. So, Father, send us on mission as we go to represent you in this community to which you have called us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand and receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.